Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the 49ers Plus podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this week we'll be talking about the tough 28-14 loss this past Sunday at Atlanta, how the lack of a running game and making any adjustments on the offensive and defensive side of the ball really doomed San Francisco, more injuries to talk about, and we'll look ahead to the upcoming game this Sunday when San Francisco is at home for a Super Bowl rematch against the Chiefs. In the plus section, we'll discuss some results for some from some big college and pro football games. We'll discuss the Rings of Power um, season finale. I'm going to rank the Marvel Phase 4 TV shows that appear on Disney+. And like always, we'll conclude making our Week 7 NFL picks. So let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners! And not a great week for San Francisco, looking to improve their record to 4-2. and two. Instead, they dropped to 3-3, three and three, which is important given some of the games that they have coming up. But looking at the overall stats, San Francisco won the total yardage war, for whatever that's worth, 346 to 289. Had more first downs than Atlanta, 21 to 18. Atlanta did win the time of possession battle by more than seven minutes. And San Francisco had three turnovers, none for Atlanta. Jimmy on the day played a pretty good game, 29 of 41, 296 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions, no sacks. Marcus Mariota, 13 of 14, 129 yards, two touchdowns and a running touchdown. Mariota was sacked twice. On the ground is where Atlanta did most of their damage. Um, Huntley, one of the running backs, went 16 for 59. Tyler Algier, 15 for 51. Mariota, 6 for 50 and a touchdown. So all told... 40 rushes for 168 yards and a touchdown. That's a 49er line. They did not get there. One of the reasons why they lost. The 49er running backs, by contrast, Jeff Wilson Jr., seven rushes for 25 yards and a fumble. Debo, two for 11. Jimmy, three for 11. Tevin Coleman, four for three. In total, 16 rushes for 50 yards. Obviously, that is not going to cut it. Passing, we'll start with San Francisco. Brandon Ayuk, eight receptions for 83 yards and two touchdowns. Debo Samuel, seven for 79. And George Kittle went eight for 83. And they all had at least 10 targets. For the Falcons, Zacchaeus went four for 58. Rookie receiver Drake London, three for 40. Kyle Pitts, three for 19 and one touchdown. The top graded players for the 49ers per pro football focus. On offense, Brandon Ayuk, Mike McGlinchey, who only played 22 snaps before he had to come out with a leg injury, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, and um, Daniel Brunskill, who came in for McGlinchey, played 46 snaps, was one of the five highest-rated offensive players. On defense, it was mainly part-time players. Drake Jackson played 12 snaps on the defensive line. Oren Burks at linebacker, 26 snaps. Kamiko Ture, another defensive end, 14 snaps. Kerry Hyder, yet another defensive end, 21 snaps. The only player that played the majority of the defense that ended up on this list was cornerback Diamador Lenore, who got the start for Emmanuel Mosley, who's done for the season. So overall, this loss is not on Jimmy. He threw for 296 total. Yeah, there was some garbage. It was like 40 or 50 garbage time yards on the last drive that absolutely did not mean anything. But you contrast that with two big drops, which would have counted for 70-plus yards 
um, that was taken away from him um, by drops by Ray Ray McLeod at receiver and Charlie Warner at tight end. We'll get more into that. And one of his interceptions was essentially a Hail Mary to Debo Samuel at the end of the half. There was nine seconds left. San Francisco was on their own 45. No timeouts. Could not use the middle of the field. Atlanta was taking away the sidelines. Jimmy threw one down to about the 20. If Debo comes down with it and gets out of bounds, it's a field goal attempt. Instead, it was intercepted. But most importantly, in listening to Kyle before the game, he got away from the run. And Kyle has said before that, you know, the running game is obviously important to the success of the 49ers offense. But what's equally as important is volume of carries. He wants to get around 30 carries a game. 40 would be the upper limit of that. We've talked about that before. And this was a not this was not a game where Atlanta was playing exceptionally well against the run or that they got out so far ahead, especially in the second half, that they couldn't run the ball. In total, 16 rushes for 50 yards. Caleb Huntley on the Falcons ran 16 times himself. Tyler Algier on the Falcons ran 15 times himself. 16 total carries for 50 yards is not a formula for success. Um Jeff Wilson Jr. had a costly fumble on the second offensive drive of the game. That was returned for a touchdown. Now, taking a step back, Atlanta went down the field on their first drive. They won the coin toss, went down the field, six-minute drive, punched it into the end zone. That was the first defensive t- uh, for- first offensive touchdown the 49ers defense allowed in the first half this year. It came in game six. Hats off to the defense still. That was obviously not going to continue all season. Um, Niners get the ball uh, on their second, didn't do anything with it on the first possession, second possession. Wilson fumbles. It's a scoop and score returned for a touchdown. San Francisco's down 14, nothing with about six minutes to go in the first quarter, but they got back into it. Their next two drives were touchdown drives. Both were, um, well, the first was a bubble screen to Brandon Ayuk. The second one went to Ayuk again, but it was a crossing pattern that he took into the end zone. Atlanta winds up getting the ball back after that and scores um, to go up 21-14 to at the half. Now, issues for the defense, you know, the running game. Um, Atlanta was not... You know, before we before we actually dive into the defense, we'll just we'll just say this. You know, a 21-14 game, Atlanta was chewing up the clock running the ball, but they were not getting big runs. Their runs were two, three, four yards. And Mariota had a couple of big runs. One was on a third down where he broke the pocket, picked up 15 yards in a first down. Then the other one was on a quarterback run pass option, which he picked up about 20 yards. Those are big chunk plays that you can fault the defense to a certain degree, but it was, you know, sometimes, again, the other team just makes a better play. Mariota was making something happen, but a 21-14 game at the half. Remember, Kyle loves to defer, which means they got the ball to start the second half, went three and out. So again, from a coach saying how important running the ball is, setting the tempo, volume of runs, making easier throws whether it's a second and seven or a third down and four versus a you know a second and ten third and ten three straight incompletions the first one was to Ayuk on an in it was a bit low couldn't hold on to it the next pass was a beautiful 50 yard bomb that Jimmy throws to receiver Ray Ray McLeod who drops it now he in all fairness he did have to reach for it we're not talking about a dive we're talking about his arms being extended and the ball went right through his hands 
San Francisco obviously is not a team that takes a lot of deep shots. They changed it up this game. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But when they take them and they're there, they need to be caught. You know, Jimmy's a quarterback that needs, that has some limitations and needs help. Every quarterback needs help when you throw any sort of pass, but especially a perfectly in stride 50. It wouldn't have been a touchdown. I think it would have been tackled inside the 20. That catch, that catch needs to be made. The next drive, backup tight end Charlie Werner drops a beautiful, you know, 20, 25 yard seam pass right down the middle of the field. Werner gets behind the linebacker, splits the safeties. Werner drops it right in his hands. Now, I can understand a couple things here. If that's Kittle, he probably doesn't get that free release. He's probably played man up or bracketed or doubled somehow. If it's Ross Dwelly, who should be the second tight end, Ross Dwelly is the receiving tight end. Charlie Werner is the blocking tight end. Maybe that's why Kyle drew it up for Werner, because maybe the defense doesn't think that he's going to be a receiving threat. And guess what? He He's not, and he wasn't. And Ross Dwelly had no targets on the whole game. That was Charlie Werner's only target of the game, with, with good reason, right? But how I've been saying for how many episodes now, Kyle has not developed a legitimate number two tight end option. If you want to say Warner's your legitimate number two blocker, then Dwelly is your legitimate number two pass receiver. I don't I don't know if he's has compromising photos of Kyle's wife or something. I don't know. There's no reason why Ross Dwelly is not part of the offense. Kittle can't play every down. You get favorable matchups of Dwelly on a linebacker when you go to tight ends. I don't know why he, why Kyle doesn't scheme that up. And when you do scheme it up, you scheme it up for a tight end who is primarily a blocker in college and has shown nothing year three as a receiver in the NFL. Again, great throw, not Jimmy's fault. If either, if both of these catches are made, they're in field goal range. And let's say they don't score touchdowns but they can get six more points out of it. They lose the game 28 to 14. Maybe, maybe now, you know, you can't with those two field goals that could change the course of the game somehow, right? You just can't go and say, well, if they kick two field goals, it's 28 to 20 at the end of the game. It might be. And if it's a one score game at the end of the game, the last drive, the second last drive San Francisco has takes on a whole lot more meaning. Now, on top of that, Kyle drew up a really nice, throwback for Jimmy, which is Jimmy rolling to his left, looked downfield, threw back across the field, a beautiful dime to Brandon Ayuk, 30 yards downfield, got two feet inbounds, holding on the center, Jake Brendel, that play comes back. I don't know what else, I don't want to say I don't know what else Jimmy can do. Jimmy's not a mobile quarterback. He could not do what um, Marcus Mariota did the game with the run pass option. But I think there's also never going to be a game where Jimmy Garoppolo completes more than 20 not more than more than um, 100% of the passes that Marcus Mariota attempts. And I screw that up, but let me just say the numbers. Jimmy completed 29 passes. Marcus Mariota attempted 14. That will never happen again. That that Jimmy to his competitive quarterback um, comparison. But he threw for almost 300. It, it's a very curious game plan or offensive production by the 49ers because they they move the ball well through the air, not well through the ground. This is an Atlanta defense that is not a strong defense. Kyle doesn't look like that he attacks 
defense's weakness. They're they're not a great pass defense, bottom five, and not a great run defense either. It's not like Atlanta took away the run. San Francisco abandoned it when they got down 14-0, then 21-14, then 28-14. They didn't have to go away from the run as soon as they did. And people are going to say, well, just, just, just prove that Jimmy can't throw you back into a game. He did, and he had opportunities for scores on three different drives. And we'll get into the second to last drive in a sec in a moment. They just they just didn't cash in. Now, one of the things that I learned, um, actually, let's go back, let's go back to the the uh second to last drive of the game. So San Francisco winds up starting that drive on their own one. Beautiful punt by Atlanta. Downs it at the one. San Fran had difficulty getting past their own 30 because they were moving the ball, illegal motion, illegal player downfield. There was a hold. So they were getting chunk plays and then coming back. They wind up taking almost eight minutes off the clock. Get get to the Atlanta 18-yard line. It was a nine-yard pass play to Juwan Jennings to get them to the 18. It was a second down and one. Now, I've said this. I think I said this about a college game a few weeks ago, or actually even in a pro game when it was second down and one or third down and one, the Raiders uh, Monday night game against the Chiefs where the Raiders wind up taking a shot to Devontae Adams downfield. It was a third down and one, didn't hit it, and then they didn't get their fourth down either. Second down and one, Jimmy was picking up second, second and one, third and one sneaks all game. Just get the first down. You're under four minutes. It's a two-score game. Statistically, you just want to give yourself the best chance to get into the end zone. So what happens? Second down and one. Jimmy drops back to pass. Everybody's initially covered. Jimmy's flushed from the pocket. He rolls right. It's a broken play. George Kittle is on the right-hand side with him. Jimmy motions for him to go to the corner of the end zone because they're at the 18. So, so Kittle's probably around the five. Jimmy scrambles out, motions. Kittle doesn't take it to the corner of the end zone. He flattens it out horizontally, runs towards the sideline. Once he sees the balls in the air going to the corner, then Kittle redirects his route. It's overthrown. That's another possible. That's another possible touchdown, or that's a possible touchdown that they could have had. Miscommunication on Kittle's part by what Garoppolo wanted to do because Kittle was behind the defender already. There was there was nobody between Kittle and the end zone or the end line. There was just a defender in front of him. Why Kittle decide to flatten it out? and cause the defender to be more of a shield to him, I'm, I'm just not sure. Kittle's an all-pro player. He gets the benefit of the doubt. But again, you're down two scores. You have an, you have an opportunity almost handed to you to get a touchdown and make it a one-score game. Kittle does not run the right. He doesn't angle his route the right way. It winds up being third and one. Tevin Coleman takes a pitch to the right. Barely gets back to the line of scrimmage. Instead of following his blocker, he had Daniel Brunskill, who came in at left ta right tackle for Mike McGlinchey. Instead of following him to the right, he cut back inside of Brunskill, who could not get a block on him, and decided to take on two tacklers. He got stopped, and on fourth down, Jimmy threw. No one was. I rewatched the game. Nobody was open on that play, and Jimmy, you know, forced the throw to Debo Samuel, which was low. They turned the ball over on downs. So, you know, all that being said, there were opportunities. Ultimately, the defense gave up three touchdowns because one touchdown was a fumble by Wilson, picked up by Atlanta, and, and scored. Uh, run back to the end zone for, for the Falcons. But offensively, again, I, I said earlier about San Francisco not tacking defense's weaknesses. Atlanta, other than Grady Jarrett on the line, they're a weak defense across the board. Now, Kyle... 
doing more research, he doesn't script his first 15 plays. He scripts his first 24 plays. And they had 23 offensive plays in the first half. Hence, they looked good in the first half. Conversely, apparently, Kyle only scripts his first eight plays to start the third quarter. That was the three and out. Uh, and then they started moving the ball on the second drive, but that's that he he drew up the bomb to Ray Ray McLeod that he dropped, but no no running plays on the on the first three drives. Again, on the first three attempts or plays of the of the third quarter. And this is a running team and he wants to establish the run. So it just seemed odd. You were only down at seven at that point. It was no need to go air it out, you know, every play. And historically and perceptually, like this is interesting. I've noticed watching every game for God knows how long, at least the last five years that Shanahan's been here, they seem to struggle in the second half. They start off strong, hence the, you know, scripting the first 24 plays, but they seem to peter out offensively, um, did not score a point in the second half of this game. And even the past couple of games, other than the Seattle game, they really haven't been scoring much in the second half. And it feels like it's something that is um, just become very apparent during the Kyle, you know, Shanahan regime. But I found, and unless the stat, I didn't pull up the stats myself, but you know, you do research, you find statistics. This is a situation where perception becomes reality. Because apparently, at least let's take last year as a sample size. Last year in the first half of games, of all their games, San Francisco ran the ball 233 times for 12 touchdowns. In the second half, they ran the ball 259 times for 10 touchdowns. Pretty decent balance. Passing attempts. Last year in the first half of games, 258 attempts for it's a 67% completion percentage. That's high. 10 touchdowns, eight interceptions, a quarterback rating of 90.6. In the second half, 245 pass attempts, 66% completion percentage, 15 touchdowns, six interceptions, 105.6 rating. So overall, so now those are those are good second half passing statistics. And even strong second half rushing statistics. So in total, last year, San Francisco scored 22 touchdowns in the first half of games, 25 touchdowns in the second half of games. I think us as fans watching games, you get your mind is so drawn to the negative, the the individual plays, the sequences of plays, the quarters or the halves where something negative happens, you glom onto that. I, I think everybody does that, especially journalists or anybody that has a YouTube channel. You're not... You're not on there singing praises, right? Or has a podcast. You're you're bitching about what went wrong, which is apparently, I guess, what I'm doing too. But when you take a step back, because sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees, this offense maybe isn't as lackluster in the second half as we thought. However, another stat, again, I didn't dig this up, but this is apparently an, a stat um, found by the Associated Press and it's been tweeted out by a couple people, and I just wanted to share with you. So since Kyle Shanahan became head coach in 2017, the 49ers are 0-26, no wins and 26 losses, when they are going into the fourth quarter down by more points. Now, that's, this is a difficult one for me to fact check, especially in the couple days I had preparing for the podcast. But I've seen this stated multiple times. Let's Let's assume it's true. That's horrible. You're not talking... That's a one-score game. You know, more than four could obviously be five, six, seven, eight, ten. They don't get, they're not usually down a bunch going into the fourth quarter. They can be up in the fourth quarter, then get down by a touchdown and come back. That's not what this stat is saying. It's saying when you're starting the fourth quarter, if they're down by five or more points, they have not won a game under Kyle Shanahan. It's shocking to the 
it's shocking in a way, but then I can also believe it when my mind goes to the perceptual spot of they don't seem to be a good offense in the second half of games. But then I just read stats out that last year, at least they scored more touchdowns in the second half of games than they have in the first half of games. And of course that could skew. There could be one game where they have three touchdowns in the second half and another game where they have none or a game that they have one. Like there's, there's ways that obviously the touchdowns can be grouped into fewer games. And again, your mind just remembers the bad games, but I don't think any of us would be unfair to say this offense is still a work in progress. This is an offense that's averaging 20 points a game. They're giving up 15 points a game. So that's a winning formula, but you're going to have games like the Falcon game where, you know, you can't San Francisco always bank like the past two games on getting a defensive touchdown. Sometimes you're going to give up a defensive touchdown. You're going to give up a special teams touchdown. Sometimes kickoff return, punt return, pump block. These are things that are going to happen. So yes, while it's great that the defense gave up only three scores, 21 points, this is still an offense that's averaging only 20 points a game. So that's still a loss. If your team's not going to be able to muster on average more than 20 points a game, you're not going to win games against teams that play a clean game. Atlanta played a clean game. Jimmy did have two interceptions. Like I said, one was a Hail Mary. One was again an in route to Debo that the corner drove down on, or might've been the safety got made contact with Debo right when the ball got there. I do. People say it was pass interference. It was not ball gets batted and intercepted by Atlanta. Again, a high throw by Jimmy. So just goes back to, you know, if you're, if you're going to get your, if you're going to get your receiver smoked and smacked and hit hard, at least put the ball in his numbers, at least give him a chance to one, catch the ball to defend himself because at least you can catch it and like try to curl up and brace for the hit versus Debo was up in the air trying to get a hand on it. And you know, the defender got a good clean shot on the side of his body, his ribs. You don't want to throw, you know, hospital balls to people, whether it's something low, you're leading someone into a linebacker or something high. Jimmy does that. That's an issue. But I will say before we get to the defense, Jimmy looked in control of the other than that throw. He looked in control of the offense he stepped up, he was sidestepping pressure, he ran a couple times, you saw him going through his progressions, he checked it down when he needed to, he took shots downfield, he under, sort of underthrew Brandon Ayuk on a deep throw in the third or fourth quarter, that was um, Ayuk and the defender both went up for it and it got batted away, that happens, you can't say, well, Jimmy's got to throw a perfect pass, People want Jimmy to throw perfect passes all the time. Or you know, look at Aaron Rodgers. They're three and three. They're struggling. Pat Mahomes threw an interception to end the game against the Bills uh, this past Sunday. So it's going to happen. And I understand it happens to Jimmy more than most. But also, they Kyle doesn't ask him to throw as much as other teams do. So when he makes a mistake, it's mathematically compounded because he he doesn't get a lot of opportunities to throw the ball. Look at Mariota. He had 14 attempts. He completed 13 passes. I could have, I watched the game again. Assuming I could see over, well, I can't see over the line. Assuming I could see through the line, I would have completed 11 of those passes. Me, that, they did not ask anything difficult of Mario. Now, if he was 13 of 14 and threw a pick, that's a bad pick percentage. That four, out of 14 throws, one of them was an interception. Out of, 40, out of 41 throws, Two of them were interceptions, so it was an interception for every 20 and a half throws. That's not terrible. And the one in the the beginning of the, at the end of the first half, excuse me, didn't hurt them. There was no time left on the clock. The one to Debo did, 
But again, that's that's what you're going to get with Jimmy. And he, you know, if I said before, if you can get 250 out of Jimmy, two touchdowns and an interception, that's that's a winning formula. I can live with that. They sort of got that, but the defense played great for five games. This was a game where they did not play great, and they got worked on their first drive. Atlanta went right down the field, nice mix of run and pass, punched into the end zone, six minute drive, went up seven nothing. We can't sit here with a straight face and say injuries had nothing to do with it. We also can't say if San Francisco had all their defensive starters, they would have won the game. We don't know that. We know who they did have, and they did not win the game. But let's go over again. Who is out? Starting defensive tackles, Eric Armstead and Javon Kinlaw. Kinlaw is now on IR. That ACL reconstructive knee had a flare-up. He's not going to be back for at least three more weeks. Nick Bosa rested which I agree with. There are more important com- games coming up than, than this game. Uh, Emmanuel Mosley, starting corner, done for the year. Aziz Alshire, starting linebacker, out for probably another month. During the game, the other starting corner, Charvarius Ward, got hurt. And the other defensive end, starting defensive end, Samson Ebucom, was hobbled, which, which they're calling now Achilles tendonitis, which he had going into it, but aggravated it. He tried to, he tried to tough it out, um, couldn't play all the way through it. And Atlanta basically just kind of ran the ball down their throats. They weren't impressive runs. Now, when you run 40 times for a buck 68 and a touchdown, that is impressive. But the the running backs themselves, Huntley averaged, he had 16 carries for 59 yards, 3.7 yards a carry. Algier, 15 for 50, 3.4 yards a carry. Mariota went 6 for 50. It's because he had a couple long runs. One was 17 yards, one was 20 yards. So he had an 8.3 carry. But the volume of the carries is what matters. And these are big running backs. One's 230, 100, 230 pounds. One's 220. They were always falling forward. Even when they got hit behind the line of scrimmage, they were getting back to the line of scrimmage or gaining a yard or two. Now, that sounds like not a big deal. But if you're at second and eight, that's a running down for Atlanta. You're at second and 12. That's probably a passing down. That makes that makes a difference. And listen, Mariota was 13 or 14, so you could say, well, they couldn't stop the pass either, I, I guess. But he didn't do a ton of damage in the air, through the air. It was 129 yards passing. They could not get off the field on third downs. They had Atlanta stopped a handful of times, third and two, third and three, could not get off the field. Now, <clears throat> What, you know, rewatching the game, now San Francisco came into the game the number one rush defense. They ended the game, even giving up 168 rushing yards. They're still the number two run defense in the league. Obviously, one one game does not define your season. One rushing defense performance or even a loss doesn't define how good of a defense you are or how good of a team you are. But what I did notice was, I think there was a bit of of obstinance or a stubbornness to D'Amico Ryan's coming into the game saying, yeah, you know, we give up about 70 yards a game on the ground. Uh, You're not going to run the ball on us. And they've been doing it with four man fronts. It's tough to do when three of your four defensive linemen are backups. And I don't want to hear anybody say, well, the Niners JV team should be Atlanta's first stringers. These are still professional athletes. Backups are backups for a reason. I don't even know... I don't know enough about the uh, the Falcons team to say that the 49ers backups would be starters for the Falcons. When you're playing as many backups as San Francisco did, which was it ultimately wound up being six to seven on defense because Ebucom, the defensive end, was out a bunch. Yeah, they're they're 
at some point you're going to wear down or at some point it's going to show. And the defense was still stopping runs for three or four yards, two, three or four yards. But, but Atlanta just kept pounding different types of runs with the same result. And when it came down to a third and two and third and three, they got it. One thing I noticed rewatching the game was I only saw a five man, like a pure five man defensive line, meaning either um, a lineman or a linebacker once before Atlanta's final drive of the game. Now, if you listen to this podcast, I know there aren't a ton of you, but if you listen to this, you know I've said before that this is one of the formulas that the Rams found against San Francisco. Didn't really work that well this year, but in the NFC Championship game last year, five down linemen screwed up San Francisco's running game. At what point in the first half, if I'm D'Amico Ryan, so I say, okay, you know what? I, I have three backups on the D-line. They're running the ball, not fantastic, but they're pushing us backwards. When do I put a fifth defensive lineman on the field? Apparently, it was just once in the third quarter, and I didn't see that again until two, two minutes and 45 seconds left in the game. Now that, you could say, well, well, you knew Atlanta was going to run to try to get a first down and milk the game away. Yeah, I get that. But the way the game went from the first quarter on, not even the first quarter, going into the game, you know Atlanta wants to run. You know that they're an offensive team that's not that explosive. Kyle Pitts is just, the great tight end, is just coming off of a hamstring injury. How limited was he going to be? Um, Drake London, rookie receiver, how much was he going to affect the game? Calvin Ridley, as you know, is out all year on a gambling suspension. Him in the game might have made things a little bit different just from the, the, the dynamics of what the offense could do, but they, weren't, they were not built to throw the ball 25 times, so you know that they were going to run it, but at no point in the first half did Ryans decide to try to take the runaway with some beef on the line. Yes, they brought Talano Hufunga down a couple times like they have in other games to either blitz or try to chase a ball carrier down, rushing around a tackle, but a 210-pound safety is not the same as a 285- or 300-pound D lineman. They could have played like what you want to call big nickel all game. They could have played five down linemen, two linebackers, two corners or three corners, and, and a safety high. They could have left either Tayshawn Gibson or Talano Hufunga as like the deep safety just in case Atlanta was tempted to take a shot. You would have had, it would have been seven in the box instead of eight, but going four linemen and then three linebackers and, and a corner or a safety wasn't doing it. I was just surprised that they did not mix it up. Would they have won the game? I don't know. The way Atlanta was running, probably not. But it might have gotten them off the field on some third downs. And those were long drives that Atlanta put together. Could have gotten them off the field. Could have gotten them another possession or two to maybe do something. But listen, injuries... There's a lot of them. Now, Mike McGlinchey is hurt. I don't know if he's going to be able to play this week against the Chiefs. Charvarius Ward, not sure. Um, Nick Bosa, not sure. Injuries caught up with them and opportunities. They played some uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic 49er offense, which means throwing the ball downfield. They had opportunities, drops, or penalties that could have made the game a bit different. Now, transitioning to the Chiefs game, which I mentioned, so San Francisco... Averaging 20 points a game, it's not going to do it against the Chiefs. They're giving up 15 points a game. They're not going to hold the Chiefs to 15. So this is, like, mathematically, you can see how this is just not going to work, especially when you factor in the injuries. Now, the Chiefs this past Sunday lost 24-20 uh, to 20 to the Bills um, in, uh, yeah, to the Bills, sorry. Buffalo won the turnover battle 2-1. Um, 
time of possession, um, three minutes more for Buffalo. And Buffalo ran, now this is what's key, right? They ran the ball 31 times for 125 yards. That is not like the Bills. The Bills made a, a fierce commitment to running the ball to try to slow the Chiefs down, to give the Chiefs less possessions. Again, even if they ran 31 times for 90 yards, you're still withholding the ball from Kansas City from some. Now the Chiefs, who are generally a pretty good running team, only ran the ball 18 times for 68 yards. It's a little over three yards to carry. Juju Smith-Schuster and Travis Kelsey at tight end, both went over 100 yards, especially Kelsey, someone that San Francisco needs to take away. Now, rankings, the Chiefs, obviously, high-powered offense. They're the number five offense overall in the league. They're fourth passing, they're 20th running. They were much better running earlier in the season. Past couple weeks, they've gotten away from it. Their run production has dipped. Now, defensively, they're 20th overall, 27th against the pass, and fourth against the rush. Now, fourth against the rush is very deceiving because of two things. One, they get out ahead of teams, right? Like, they put points up on the board. They take the run away from teams because they turn they turn football games into track meets. So if you're down 10, 14, 17 or more, you're abandoning the run. That and what they that essentially what they did to Tampa Bay, they got up on Tampa Bay so much that the, the Chiefs, I'm sorry, the Buccaneers only ran the ball, I think, six times for four yards. So when you take that one, if you take that one performance out, they're not a top five rush defense. They're a top five rush defense based on how prolific their offense is, almost making other teams submit to not run the ball because they need to throw the ball for points to catch up. Points per game, Chiefs score 30, average 30, they let up 25. Not a great Chiefs defense, but can Kyle take advantage of this? Can they attack, can he attack the Chiefs? weaker defense. I don't want to say this is a defense that's on par with Atlanta, but I don't think they're all that much better than Atlanta. Are they going to open it up more? Are they going to try to control? Are they going to put make a more concerted effort to run the ball? Are they going to try to score with KC? Or are they going to try to slow it down? Ideally, you want to slow it down and also score with KC or limit the number of offensive opportunities and drives the Chiefs have, but San Francisco has to sustain drives. They have to get ahead of the chains on first down when they're running the ball. Picking up, even if you pick up three, four yards, you can run again on second down, or it makes second down a very viable play action down before third down, which is usually going to be a passing down unless you're maybe third and two, third and three, like we saw with Atlanta this past week. San Francisco needs to make the Chiefs one-dimensional. I think the Chiefs know that they can throw on San Francisco. Um, Emmanuel Mosley's out. If Charvarius Ward is out, um, Mahomes may throw for 400 yards, but I think they're, I think the chiefs are going to want to come in and want to commit and commit to the run just so they can help slow down the pass rush one, depending on who's there, if Bosa is going to be there, but they still have other players, whether it's Drake Jackson, Kerry Hyder, Tamiko Torre, um, Charles and who they got other people, Samson Ebucom, if he's healthy, they have other people that can get to the quarterback, but it starts with Bosa because of the double teams and attention that he draws. If they can make Kansas City one-dimensional, this is a that's a tall order. They also have to, to limit, they're not going to take Kelsey away, but they have to limit his production. I don't think Warner, no one can cover him one-on-one at the linebacker level. I don't know if they're going to play, maybe they play three safeties this game and put Gibson on him or Tavarius Moore. Um, I don't know if Jimmy Ward's going to be able to play. He broke his hand, he had surgery, he's going to have a club on his hand. Now, defensively, there's talk that they might get Nick Bosa and Trevarius Ward back. That's great. I don't know how healthy they're going to be. But if there's any question or doubt if they can play, sit them. 
I don't want to just concede this game for the Chiefs. I think this is a tough game for San Francisco to win if they were fully healthy. But the next game is at the Rams before San Francisco's bye. The Rams game is a much more important game than the Chiefs game. Let's play this out. The Rams are on a bye this week. They're three and three. Say San Francisco loses, they're three and four. Rams come back next week. They play each other in Los Angeles. If San Francisco wins that game, they're four and four. The Rams are three and four. Now San Francisco has, in in essence, a two-game lead on them because they would have beaten them both times during the regular season. That's going to be big because I don't think Seattle or Arizona is going to challenge for the division. Again, I don't want to say you give up this, this Kansas City game, but if you want to really make a push for the West... The Rams game is more important, so I would potentially hold off on players that are maybe questionable or somewhat injured to make sure they are healthy for a game that is very important, very winnable, and it's a Rams team that is ripe for the for the takedown. And beating them twice during the regular season is going to matter so much when it comes to week 15, 16, 17, 18 when teams are jockeying for position. So I hope I didn't give away the prediction. I think the Chiefs are going to win this game. I think it's going to be 27 to 20. I think the Niners are going to be right on their season average of 20 points per game. I think San Fran will hold the Chiefs under their 30 points per game average to to 27. But I think Kansas City is too diverse. I think they, especially if they get up on San Francisco by 10 or 13 or 14, like the Falcons did, it's going to throw everything out of whack. Then you have the defensive line of Chris Jones and Frank Clark with the Chiefs going to wreak havoc. Defensive coordinator Steve Spagnola has showed that he can play, he wants to play man more and will blitz. Can the Niners receivers beat man coverage? They haven't shown that they always can. So I think this is going to be a tough game for San Francisco. I just want them to get out of the game healthy, stay healthy, um, because they're certainly not stay he- stay as healthy as they can be, because they're certainly not healthy now. If they can sneak a win out of this, that's fantastic. But I think the Chiefs. They're smarting from this loss against Buffalo, just like I guess the Niners are um, for the loss against the Falcons. But I think the Chiefs do do a little bit more than San Fran does. They win by a touchdown, twenty-seven to twenty. So that concludes our 49ers section of the podcast. Stay with us. A um, lot of good plus content coming up next. It's plus time. Okay, welcome back, and let's start the plus section off with football, but transition to college football. And really the game of the day and probably the game of the year so far was Tennessee beating Alabama at home in Knoxville, 52 to 49. This was at least in the second half a back and forth game. Tennessee jumped out on Alabama early. Alabama came back, took the lead in the second half. Um, some uh, over a thousand yards, over 1100 yards of, of offense, 569 to 567 in favor of Alabama. Alabama dominated time of possession by more than 15 minutes. Tennessee had more turnovers, two versus one for Alabama. But the difference really was the play of quarterback Hendon Hooker for the Vols really all game, but especially down the stretch. He went 21 of 30, 385 yards and five touchdowns with one interception. He added 56 yards on 15 carries on the ground. Bryce Young for Alabama did not play poorly, 35 of 52, 455, and two touchdowns. All five of quarterback Hendon Hooker's touchdown passes went to wide receiver Jalen Hyatt, excuse me, who had six receptions overall for 207 yards. So at the end of the game, 
It's tied 49-49. Alabama has the ball. They miss a 50-yard field goal with 15 seconds left. So uh, Tennessee gets the ball at their own 32. Again, 15 seconds, two passes, one to midfield, then one to the Alabama 23-yard line with two seconds left. They get the timeout, and they wind up kicking a 40-yard field goal, which I still can't tell if it was tipped at all because it came out spinning horizontally. It looked like a knuckleball that just got over the uprights. Um, the fans stormed the field. They wound up actually taking out the two field goal uprights, of out, took it out of the stadium, and threw it into the into a river that was nearby. I'm not sure how that doesn't get stopped by police, but okay. So the Volunteers and actually Alabama wound up switching spots in the AP poll. Tennessee is now three. Alabama is now six. The Volunteers still have to play Georgia um, at Georgia, I believe. And if they win that game and win um, the SEC East, they would just have to play Alabama again. So your reward for beating Alabama and jumping in the polls might be to play Alabama again. So they have to go through Georgia and Alabama to make their way into the playoff. Maybe they, they can't lose to Georgia um, and make their way into the playoff because they would have to win the SEC or at least their, their side of the SEC. And if they lose to Alabama in a close game, you know, Alabama only fell three spots. We have to see what happens in front of them with Georgia, with Ohio State. We'll see what Michigan does at number four. But a really, really good game. Uh, and an equally good game, at least for me, was watching Penn State get obliterated by Michigan. Now, Jim Harbaugh is the coach of Michigan, and he was the 49ers coach at one point. That's not why I was pleased. I was just pleased that Penn State got obliterated. Um, just one of the teams I just dislike in college football. Michigan just dominated in every way possible. More than doubled the uh, Penn State in yards, 28-10 to 10 in first downs. They had a 24-minute time of possession. Over Penn State, Penn State ran the ball pretty well. 22 rushes for 111 yards and a touchdown. That's five yards a carry. But Michigan ran for um, 418 yards on 55 carries and four touchdowns um, on the ground. Another good loss, at least for me, Notre Dame lost to Stanford. They lost at Notre Dame 16-14. to So anytime two of the three unholy um, trinity of college football teams loses, I'm happy the third being Ohio State. Ohio State was off this week, so they did not play, so they remain number two in the rankings. This week, some good games again, uh, ranked versus ranked teams. An ACC matchup, Syracuse number 14 at number five Clemson. Syracuse is probably going to get obliterated. A Pac-12 showdown between number nine UCLA and number 10 Oregon, whatever the over is, you know, you should probably take that if you're going to bet on it. And then we'll conclude with two um, Big 12 matchups, number 20 Texas at number 11, Oklahoma State, and number 17, Kansas State, and number 8, TCU. That should probably help shake out the leaders um, in the Big 12 as we kind of steamroll through October and into November um, as we get into bowl, um, as we get into conference championship um, season. But going back to the NFL, a couple games just to quickly touch on. Chiefs-Bills, um, game of the week. I mean, might, might be the game of the year, what people were looking forward to. Buffalo finally gets a win in Kansas City, and from what I understand, the Bills play the Chiefs again next year in Kansas City. Buffalo took the lead 24-20 to um, with a late touchdown um, by Josh Allen. The Chiefs get the ball back, and Mahomes didn't really have any magic left. He throws an interception on his final drive, so the Bills get the win there. Uh, Dallas losing at Philadelphia 26-17. to It looked like Philadelphia was going to run away with this 
early on give the uh, Cowboys credit for for clawing back. And just an interesting stat here: Dallas had the leading passer in Cooper Rush, the leading rusher in Ezekiel Elliott, and the leading receiver in C.D. Lamb, and they still lose the game <laughs> by nine points. Just goes to show that that stats don't mean everything. Broncos Chargers Chargers win this on Monday night Chargers win this game 19 to 16 how about this though a nationally televised Broncos game that has two total touchdowns in it one for each team what a treat um but Denver again just horrible 258 total yards by the Broncos uh Russell Wilson was playing with a torn lat um in his shoulder and then now he has a hamstring strain but really the the hero winds up being kicker Dustin Hopkins who severely pulled his right hamstring if you guys if anyone was watching the game on the first extra point San uh, San Diego the Los Angeles Chargers had but winds up kicking four field goals including the game winner from 40 yards <laughs> and he's out two to four weeks but now with that win the Chargers are tied with the Chiefs um, at four and two atop the AFC West Washington Commanders owner Daniel Snyder coming under more scrutiny as there are leaks that he is claiming to have dirt on other owners, which is not going to sit well with other owners. I mean, I'm sure there are there is dirt to dig up on on Jerry Jones, Jim Ursay, just to name a few. But people with money that are in control and in positions of authority do not like to hear that other people or another owner is trying to throw them under the bus for whatever reason. And I'm sure this was a proactive move by Daniel Snyder because he's come under claim, under fire the past couple of years, whether it was incidents with cheerleaders, sexual harassment in the workplace, there was other workplace issues, just a complete mess of an organization. And I, you know, if he felt like owners were going to vote him out, and I think they need 24 of the 32 owners um, to, to approve that for it to happen, I guess he was trying to dig up some dirt to, to it's essentially blackmail, right? Um, to keep his position. It's, I don't, that's not going to go over well. Snyder is all but on his way out and good riddance, honestly, since he became head coach, I'm sorry, he shouldn't be an owner or a head coach, but since he bought the team in 1999, his overall record is 158, 216 losses and one tie. He's had six winning seasons, six playoff appearances. They haven't made it past the divisional round. Then he cycled through 10 head coaches. It's just become, you know, I, I think of all the franchises in the NFL, probably the Houston Texans are the most irrelevant just because they have, they don't have a big name head coach. They don't have a big time quarterback after trading Deshaun Watson, which they should have done after everything he put that organization through. But I think right behind them, the Washington commanders, um, the name change, which, and, and logo change, which they should have done a while ago. Um, but you know, no big name players. They were a proud franchise in the 70s and 80s and even the early 90s, last time they won the Super Bowl beating the Bills. But they've been just a doormat more or less since. And I'm not sure that new ownership is ultimately going to change it that much because owners don't play on the field. They're not an active participant. But this kind of crap trickles down from the top. And it's not really head coach Ron Rivera's fault ultimately. They're just a destination that players don't want to go to. Um, they had a quarterback issue. They wind up trading for Carson Wentz. He's not the answer. Now he's hurt. He has a broken finger. So backup Taylor Heineke, who played some good football the past couple of years in spot duty, is going to come in. But I just think that is an organization that needs a complete hit of the reset button. And it starts at the top with Snyder, who's hopefully on his way out. Now, transitioning to some TV um, this week, 
uh, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power had its finale. It was an eight-episode season. Now, to me, you know, whether I was the demographic or not, I mean, they were obviously going for broad-reaching appeal of this show. This was not meant to bring in the J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings superfans, people that watched the, the trilogy of movies a bunch of times, which I did, but also people that have read the books uh, multiple times, which I have not. But I thought it was uh, a satisfying season, a satisfying finale. It was a it was, it's a beautiful show. They obviously put a lot of money into it. I thought the acting was acting and directing were better than than people are giving it credit for. And in the finale, you finally figure out who the big bad is, um, Sauron. They reveal what character in this show he actually is. The really large, well, the really large human in comparison to the short um, Harfoots um, called Meteor Man, he he actually realizes uh, who he is or what type of being he is. He can talk now and communicate. And it really ends with the elves beginning to forge these rings of power. And they forged three for themselves that the elves are going to keep. And it was infused with this element called Mithril, which the dwarves are able to mine and excavate, but it has become very dangerous for them to do so. So they only have a nugget, a small piece of this mithril, but the elves need it to survive since the way they describe it, their light is dying in middle earth and they're going to either have to leave middle earth and go to another continent or they can stay. And I guess these rings will infuse them with enough energy, life force aura, or power to do that. Um, Looking forward to the second season, not going to come out until 2024. The issues that people have with the show, I think, are ridiculous in a lot of ways. One of the issues being the pacing of the series. Well, guess what? You can't you can't have a story that's moving at a breakneck pace in a TV show. The Lord of the Rings movies, each one of them was two plus hours, two and a half hours, or over three hours with the extended editions. When it's a movie, you have a couple hours to tell your story, whether it's a trilogy or obviously a self-contained story. But the fact that it is an eight-episode season of a series, and these episodes are are a solid hour. They're an hour without counting intros, um, any sort of credits which take up, you know, several minutes. So you're getting eight solid hours of story in season one, which is more story or more screen time than you got from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So it, if people are saying it was a slow burn, I'm okay with that because you have now obviously different stories and races and environments in the land of Middle Earth that that you need to introduce and get invested in. I was totally okay with that. The racism aspect of, you know, there's no black dwarf, black elves, or facial hair on female dwarf. Like, that's just, you're, these are people that are finding something to complain um, when it's really not there. And the idea of it's not following the books or the lore, we talked about that before, that it, it can't, just based on the rights. So they're, they're telling a fill-in-the-gaps story, and I think they did a really nice job on that. Um, when you go and when you look at the reviews on a site like Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave it an 82. Who These are people that I think are better served to judge a show in a series like this. That again, it's wide-ranging appeal. You're trying to get a general audience invested, especially with the amount of money that was invested in this series. The audience gave it a 39%. Absurd. Now, when you go to something like IMDb, Internet Movie Database, that's only user reviews. They gave it a 6.9 out of 10. So you, know, close, you want to round it up, it's close. It's a 7. 
Um, but the second highest or mo most popular rating given to this show was a 1 out of a 10. That was 19% of the people that voted. Again, review bombing, internet trolls. I think the overall ratings of either an 8, 82% of the, of the um, critics on Rotten Tomatoes or a 6.9 out of 10 uh, user reviews on, on Internet Movie Database, I think somewhere in between there is fair. I think between a 7 and an 8, I think where this lives, I, I would maybe say closer to an 8. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a true adaption of what I was expecting based on what I saw in the movies. Again, other people that are really, you know, hunkered down into the lore may feel differently. And and in the future, I'm going to do, you know, a podcast on Star Wars, on the Star Wars Extended Universe books that are no longer considered, quote unquote, canon or valid. The shortcomings with the sequel trilogy and what they could have done. So I, I, I understand where these people are coming from, but I'm not one that's going to dig myself, you know, so into the ground and act like, you know, I use the word, um, you know, a butthurt internet troll that you're going to just keep complaining and complaining and complaining about it. And the best thing about these people or, or the worst thing, at least the comedic thing is they keep complaining about it, but they keep watching it. And I know this because I'm on these, I, I'll check out reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, on Amazon, on um, a website or an app like Reddit where people just keep bitching about it. And, you know, when you try to converse with them and say, listen, we get it. You don't like it. Why don't you stop watching it? If, if, if it's going to cause you this much grief, stop. Wow, I'm in a mess. You can't tell me what to do if I want to watch it and complain. I'm going to. And that's generally why the Internet was created, right? Well, that and for pornography. But for people to bitch about things, the Internet is a wonderful forum. But you could put your efforts and oxygen and time into something else. But for everybody out there, if you haven't watched The Rings of Power, if you are fleetingly aware of Lord of the Rings, have seen the movie, you don't need to see the movies to watch this. You really, really don't. Um, it's eight solid hours of good fantasy storytelling. It's worth your time. Now, before we get into the week seven NFL picks, I want to go over and, and actually rank all of the Marvel shows that are on Disney Plus. Actually, that's not true. There are other shows that are on Disney Plus, but the shows that are considered phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or overall Marvel Universe of, of storytelling. And I'm going to rank these from worst to best, but there's really no bad show. And I just want to make that clear. Whatever I have ranked last or second to last or third to last, I enjoyed. I enjoyed all all of these shows, but I just enjoyed some more. Uh, but the first one I want to start with um, in, in ascending order is Ms. Marvel. Now, I readily admit I'm not the demographic for this show, and this is one of the shows that got review-bombed hardcore on um, IMDb, Internet Movie um, Database. And again, it was one of those things where the second highest rating was a 1 out of a 10, basically 1 out of every 5 people voted for that. Um, I think Rotten Tomatoes got it right. The critics gave it a 97% and the users gave it an 80%. Again, I, I'm in alignment with that. I just liked other shows more based on, on my likes, dislikes, you know, types of things I'm looking for in a comic book series. But what it, what it centers on is, um, the main character's name is Kamala Khan and her family. They live in Jersey city. So something that's, you know, close to home for us in the Northeast and she's a big time superhero fan and she's really obsessed with um, Captain Marvel. She she is the first Muslim superhero for Marvel or at, or at the very least for, for Marvel's um, TV and cinematic universe. And she winds up getting superpowers from her grandmother's bracelet, which is considered a bangle. Um, and she winds up becoming 
a superhero herself and winds up naming herself Ms. Marvel again after Captain Marvel. Um, it's a very creative show. Um, what they do with illustration in the credits or actually during the show, I think is really fun. It's a fun show. It definitely has more of a, a younger audience, a teen kind of vibe. Um, I still appreciated it for, for what it was. Um, and I think again, any one of these shows I'm going to talk about, I, if you like comic book movies, comic book shows, or just escapism in general, I would recommend watching any of these. Um, next on the list is, is what if, so this was actually, it's based on, I'm not sure if it's still an ongoing comic book series, but in the eighties and nineties, or even before the eighties, there was a comic book series that was called what if, and it was basically imagining, you know, what if this superhero was put in a different situation or had a different, um, uh, super villain or they died or, or whatever it may be. It's an animated series. The animation is fantastic. Um, six episodes and some of the themes or some of the, the stories that they explore is, you know, what if Peggy Carter became Captain America instead of Steve Rogers? And Peggy Carter was Steve Rogers' love interest in the 50s. And it, they had an episode about what if she got the super soldier serum instead of Steve Rogers. They had a what if, what if um, Black Panther actually becomes the Star-Lord character and has adventures in outer space. That was cool. They had an episode uh, introducing Marvel Zombies, which was introduced... I'm going to get this wrong, but 10 plus 12 plus years ago in an ultimate fantastic four comic line that then got its own spinoff series. I think three different series of, or more of, of Marvel zombies. And it is what you expect it to. What if a, a zombie apocalypse plague infected the earth, the heroes try to stop it, but then the heroes themselves become infected and become zombies. Again, just a really cool reimagining. They had one of an episode of what if Ultron wound up winning, meaning beating the Avengers. That was the second Avengers movie age of Ultron. And then the finale kind of brought everything together and all these characters together to try to stop. I think it was called infinity Ultron or super Ultron um, in the season, in the episode six finale, there's going to be another season. I'll watch, I'll watch it. it. It's just fun to see characters, you know, in situations that are unexpected or just very, very different. And I thought everything was everything was done and handled voice acting animation really, really well. Next on the list is Hawkeye. So this starred a Jeremy Renner and Haley Steinfeld, who played the character of Kate Bishop, which is a comic book character. So this is a loose comic book adaption where um, Haley Steinfeld or Kate Bishop, um, she's in college or just graduated college, she's a very skilled archer. She looks up to Hawkeye. Um, she winds up getting caught up in, in her family in a criminal conspiracy. Um, Jerry, Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye winds up helping her and they have an adventure over, over six episodes of trying to untangle um, what's going on. I mean, it's again, it's a, it's a fun series. Um, Jeremy Renner and Haley Steinfeld have good chemistry. I, I, Hesitate using that word because usually that's used in a romantic way. Um, and given the time, the age difference between the two actors, and that's not what the interaction was. But they just they played really well off of each other. Um, and it was just a fun, quippy type dialogue. There were obviously villains. They introduced um, the Kingpin, who was played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who was, you know, the very large kingpin of crime in, in New York City, and they gave him some some super strength like he has in the comic books. Um, a fun series. 
Uh, but now we go to something that's maybe a little bit more uh, action-oriented and serious. So next, um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So this stars Anthony Mackie as Falcon and Sebastian Stan uh, reprising his role as the Winter Soldier. Sebastian Stan, if anybody wants to look this up, he bears a striking resemblance to a young Mark Hamill. And a lot of fans were hoping that he would play Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian, Mandalorian Season 2, or even a Luke Skywalker series. And I, this, act, this actor, I think, is in his early 40s now. But we saw Luke in his 20s. We saw Luke in his 60s in the sequel trilogy. I would, And, and Sebastian stands open to it. Mark Hamill gave his blessing, for whatever, which was nice, but whatever that's worth. He would be a great live-action Luke Skywalker just based on how he how he looks. Um, but it's so it's, this is a it's a buddy. It's not a comedy, but it's it's a buddy series. Um, John Walker is a character who winds up being named the new Captain America because remember in the movies Captain America Steve Rogers kind of goes into the past, stays there. Um, the characters wind up meeting him, or at least. Um, the Winter Soldier and Falcon, they meet him as kind of an older man. And Steve Rogers passes the shield and the mantle onto um, Anthony Mackie's character. But the government, I don't know if it, I if I watched this a while ago, I don't know if it was explicitly stated that they don't want they didn't want an African American Captain America, but they choose this soldier, John Walker, who winds up being, you know, the new Captain America, not cut out for it, kind of turns bad, turns into, winds up becoming the character titled U.S. Agent from the comic books who fights Captain America, who's essentially just an evil version of Captain America. Um, and a Anthony Mackie and, and Sebastian Stan, they wind up um, going on like a globetrotting adventure of trying to stop this band of criminals from using soup, the super soldier serum to create more people like, more super soldiers like Captain America, like John Walker, U.S. Agent. And along the way... Uh, we find out that Steve Rogers actually was not the first person given the super soldier serum. So he technically wasn't the first um, uh, Captain America. There was an African-American soldier who was given given that serum. And it was actually based off of a comic book from the early 2000s called Truth, which wanted to shed light on or, or give um, more of the backstory on what the U.S. government was doing in the 40s and 50s, creating these super soldiers. Um, one of which being an African-American um, soldier. So it touched upon, I think, a lot of interesting things, good action, dove into some, I don't want to call it like old lore from the Marvel comics. We're only talking about 20, 20 years at this point. But I think it was a nice, um, it was, I think it was a good series. And, it, and ultimately at the end, um, Anthony Mackie's character, Falcon, winds up taking on the Captain America mantle, and he will be Captain America moving forward, whether this gets another season or in um, future um, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Uh, next is She-Hulk, the most recent of the shows, and this is a straight-up 30-35 minute comedy. Um, Tatiana Maslany, I thought she was great playing Jennifer Walters, and also She-Hulk. She starred in... Um, the sci-fi series Orphan Black, and I think I may just check that out just based on her performance. She was, I can't think of another word other than just charming. I, I thought she was just very fun. It It is a comedy. It breaks the fourth wall a lot, and if you don't know what that means, is she, she turns to the camera and talks to the audience. It's a self-aware comedy. Um, she knows she's in a show and breaks the fourth wall quite a bit and, and does so 
in a really, really cool and fun way in the season um, finale. I don't know if it's a series finale, if there's going to be another season or not, but a lot of cameos also. So Mark Ruffalo is back as the Hulk. Um, Jennifer Walters winds, is, is the Hulk's cousin, Mark's Ruffalo's cousin, and they wind up getting into a car accident in the first episode. Their, their blood mixes, or the Hulk's blood gets into Jennifer Walters' body, and then she winds up having the Hulk powers, and, he, and the first couple episodes is Bruce Banner trying to teach her to control her rage um, being the Hulk. Now, Jennifer Walters is a lawyer, um, she winds up hulking out in, in one of the first couple episodes and a law firm, she gets fired and a law firm hires her to be the representative as She-Hulk of other superheroes who need legal representation. Um, so I said Hulk was in it, Wong was in it, who actually winds up becoming the new Sorcerer Supreme, so it's not Doctor Strange anymore. Abomination is... Um, an enemy of the Hulks, but he's reformed and he's starting his own kind of mental health retreat, which is fun and funny. Daredevil makes a cameo. So Daredevil had his own series prior to the Disney acquisition. Uh, and the same actor is playing Daredevil. Daredevil and, and Jennifer Walters, She-Hulk, wind up having a little bit of a relationship. Just an overall fun series. The comic book did the same thing in terms of breaking the fourth wall, She-Hulk talking to the reader. I don't know what people were expecting or, or why this really got review bombed. And I'll go over the stats in a second. But it's a comedy. It, it, it was marketed as a comedy. It was a it was just a fun series. And Rotten Tomatoes, again, the the critics gave it an 87%, which I think is where it need, where it should be. Of course, the users, 35%, because there's just a lot of trolls, especially if it's something that is headlined by a female. I don't understand why people generally men um, have to feel like they have to to bomb it or it, it, it the title of the, of the show is called She-Hulk you know what you're going to get like if you don't like it again just don't watch it and IMDB out of a 10 gave it a 5.1 and the one rating out of 10 was overwhelmingly the most voted upon by a third of the people again totally absurd you know what you're getting into with it. You'll know what you're getting into in the first episode about the breaking the fourth wall and the comedy. And but I just think again, just a charming actress, good acting, fun characters, quippy dialogue. It was just so lighthearted and fun and funny. I it, I, I can't imagine folks just not liking it. Next up is WandaVision. This was the first show that kicked off on Disney Plus, um, starring Elizabeth Olsen, and this is basically. Uh, Wanda Maximoff um, winds up recreating, or creating a town called Westview and brings back the android um, Vision, who was part of the Avengers, who wind up who wound up dying, if you'll remember, in Avengers Infinity War. Thanos kills him to remove the, st the, the time stone from his forehead. But she, Wanda is so powerful, she recreate, she can recreate a town um, and bring people not necessarily back to life because they're not living, but the whole mystery of the show is how did she do this? Um, her children, vision. Um, she, I think she starts to see the, the slips in reality. She knows something's not quite right, but what was really fun about this was every episode. And I'm going back because I haven't watched this in a while, but a lot of the episodes take place in a different decade of, um, American television whether it's 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and there's a there's a reason for that, and I'm not going to spoil it. Um, this town of Westfield takes place, like, in a protected dome, and people, 
either have amnesia are not aware of it, but ultimately like the FBI or, or, or that, um, superhero enforcers. I don't know. I, I forget what the name of the actual law enforcement agency is, um, becomes aware of it. They're trying to get people in there to take Wanda out and to free people. It, again, it just, I think just a really well done and creative show for what they developed and established for a grieving character. Um, Elizabeth Olsen's character. And this is something that indirectly leads into the most recent Marvel movie release. I think it's the most recent um, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness because Elizabeth Olsen's Wanda character winds up playing um, a key role as a villain um, in that. Uh, next up, uh, Moon Knight. So this is, <laughs> I don't want to say it's Marvel's answer to Batman because it's it's very, very different. Um, but a nighttime superhero um, and that's oversimplifying it. But to take a step back, Os Oscar Isaac um, stars as the title character. Ethan Hawke stars as well as a villain. And Oster Oscar Isaac really is playing a split personality um, person. On one hand, he he's playing the, a character, Stephen Grant, who has an English accent. He works in the um, gift shop of a British museum. But then he also is Mark Spector, who is... Um, an assassin, a bounty hunter, and winds up being the avatar for this Egyptian god, Khonshu. He's the god of the moon and god of vengeance. And Mark Spector makes, in when he was that personality, makes a deal with this god to become basically his vengeance on Earth. Um, and what's kind of fun about this is, as the, as the season progresses, once Stephen Grant and Mark Spector become aware of each other, when they want to turn into a superhero, Mark Spector turns into Moon Knight with a cowl, a cape, everything like you've seen in in um, commercials, perhaps. But Stephen Grant turns all white as well, but he's wearing a suit. Like, that's his embodiment of, I guess, power in a way, is, is wearing a power suit. Fun show. I like how it, it, it dives into Egyptian lore. Um, and they're really... Uh, Isaac, uh, Oscar Isaac's character is really at odds with Ethan Hawke's character who used to be Moon Knight. He used to be Khonshu's avatar on Earth, um, but then was expelled. And he is trying to raise um, another evil god from the dead to be her avatar and to really take over the world. Is I, I way oversimplify that, but very, I think, well done show. And I think there's going to be um, a second season of that. And then last but not least, um, Loki. So this is uh, starred again by Tom Hiddleton, who plays Loki. Owen Wilson stars in this as well. And this is a show that takes place after events of Avengers Endgame, which is from 2019. And basically it happens when the Avengers, some of the Avengers go back in time to the first Avengers movie and they need to steal one of the infinity stones, a Tesseract um, from that time period to, you know, go into the future and then create their own infinity gauntlet and defeat Thanos. But what winds up happening is when, after Loki is defeated in the first Avengers movie, he's being, you know, taken downstairs and, and apprehended into custody. He's supposed to be taken back to Asgard um, with Thor, but something happens. There was a distraction. Um, they, the superheroes or Iron Man winds up dropping the Tesseract. Loki gets it and disappears in that movie. You don't know where he goes. That's the end of Loki in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But he he's seen again in the Loki TV show because his taking of that Tesseract and disappearing 
disrupts the timeline. And there's an organization called the Time Variance Authority who's calling Loki, this Loki, a variant because that character of Loki already died and he shouldn't be part of the timeline anymore. But he winds up cutting a deal with Owen Wilson, who's one of the, um, the workers in this Time Variance Authority, to try to figure out there's another character out there that's messing with the timeline. And that could, of course... Well, of course, like it's real, but undo all time and reality. So Loki is working with Owen Wilson to figure out who's causing it. We get to meet other versions of Loki that appear in different um, different timelines, including a female version of Loki, which is great when that happens because you see Loki interacting with a female Loki, male Loki and female Loki. And then they're kind of like falling for each other, which they have weird dialogue because he's actually falling for himself. But ultimately, it winds up ending with... Um, a, f- a main historic character in Avengers comics and lore called Kang who can control time in some, in some aspects And this leads in, this will lead into the next Avengers movie called Avengers, the Kang dynasty, which is out in 2025 long ways away. I, there is going to be a season two of Loki. Um, but that was at least for me, the most entertaining of the, what is this eight shows? But really, I mean, again, you can't go wrong with any of these shows. I had a really difficult time in the top three between WandaVision, Moon Knight, and Loki. In a way, you can almost put them in any order. This is just the order I settled on before getting in front of the microphone. Um, but kudos to, to Marvel and and the and Disney for these, you know, Disney Plus shows they've put out there. They've all been quality. It's just a matter of um, maybe demographics or what your tastes are in, in terms of what you're looking for. But all all eight shows that I give a thumbs up. That if you have if you had any inkling to watch it, I recommend that you do. Uh, and now that concludes um, the non-NFL picks section of the plus section, but we'll move over to week seven NFL picks now. Last week, a really bad week for me, went six and eight. There was a lot of upsets and just me making stupid picks, but my, so that drops my overall record to 57 wins, 34 losses, and one tie, which is still good, which I'm going to take, but let's hope for better than six and eight this week. But starting um, off the top, four teams are on a bye. The Bills, the Rams, the Vikings, and the Eagles. So let's start with the Thursday night game. The Saints visit Arizona. So this is our Amazon Prime game. DeAndre Hopkins comes back for the Cardinals, which is good for me because I have him on two fantasy leagues, which I probably need to start him in. And he's going to help Kyler Murray out. The, the Arizona Cardinals offense has been out of sorts. They lost Hollywood Brown um, maybe for the year to an injury. They get DeAndre Hopkins back. They traded for Robbie Anderson from the Carolina Panthers. The Saints played a good game against the Bengals last week. They just don't look all that dynamic. I think Arizona breaking in two new receivers, at least for this year, between Hopkins and Anderson onto the team. I think they get a win over the Saints. Atlanta at Cincinnati. Atlanta fresh over that pretty dominant win against San Francisco. I think the Bengals... um, I, I, they're they're going to try to ta- take away the run. It's something that San Francisco couldn't do. I don't know if they go for 150 yards on the ground again for the Falcons, or even if they do, if that'll be enough to beat the Bengals, whose offense is just much more explosive than San Francisco. So I'll take Cincinnati. Detroit at Dallas. This should be the game where Dak Prescott makes his return. Detroit does have a pretty potent offense, but they have a pretty terrible defense as well. And Dallas has a top three defense. I think Dallas gets the win rather easily. Indianapolis at Tennessee. So the Colts get Jonathan Taylor back, which is good news for them, even though they did have a big win last week. Uh, I think the Titans, though, both teams are going to control the 
to control the ball on the ground between Jonathan Taylor and Derrick Henry, but I think Tennessee will do enough to win at home. Green Bay at Washington. Green Bay lost an embarrassing game to the Jets. Now, maybe the Jets are better than, than we think, but I don't think the Packers are as bad as they looked. They are going to go to Washington. They're getting the commanders with the backup quarterback. Carson Wentz is going to be out for two to four weeks with a finger injury. Taylor Heineke gets the start. That may actually be an upgrade at this point. Washington looked terrible. They did beat the Bears last Thursday night, 12-7. to I mean, I'm going to take Green Bay. Do I feel great about this just based on the fact how Green Bay has looked? No, but it's still Washington. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked, totally shocked if the Packers lost this game, but I can't in good conscience pick Washington. Tampa Bay at Carolina. Carolina is just abysmal with P.J. Walker as, as the backup quarterback. In all fairness to him, he is the third quarterback on that roster, and Sam Darnold should be coming back. I'm not sure if it's going to be this game. Tampa lost a head-scratcher at Pittsburgh. I think they just go in and obliterate Carolina. Giants at Jacksonville. Um, I, the Giants, listen, they're an impressive 5-1, but they might be the worst 5-1 team in NFL history. Uh, Jacksonville, after a 2-1 start, have um, dropped uh, 2 uh, or 3, maybe. They're 2-4. I think the Giants get the win here, but I think it's going to be a close game in Jacksonville. Cleveland at Baltimore. Cleveland kudos to the Patriots for going into Cleveland and really putting it on the Browns with their third-string quarterback, Bailey Zappi, with a really nice game. Baltimore gave that game away to the Giants. The turnover that Lamar Jackson had, the interception with about four minutes to go in the game, up four was unforgivable. I don't think... He hasn't really made that many mistakes this year. I don't think he makes a mistake like that against the Browns. I think Baltimore gets the win. Starting our 4 o'clock games, the Jets at Denver... Boy, I want to say at some point the Broncos are going to put together a complete game. I mean, it's been wildly incomplete every game except week one at Seattle. Jets, again, an impressive win at um, Green Bay. I could see the Jets winning this game. Denver defense, man, that, that's a really good unit. And I think they can give problems, uh, especially to Zach Wilson. If New York can run the ball for 100, 125 yards not ask Zach Wilson to make any big throws because I think Denver can force him to some big mistakes. Jets defense is playing well enough that I don't think this is the game that the Broncos offense gets right or Russell Wilson gets on track, but I think maybe Denver in another ugly game finds a way to beat the Jets. Houston at the Raiders. The Raiders are going to win this game. Houston's terrible and Raiders are coming off of a bye. Seattle at the Chargers. I think this could be a high scoring game. Um, I think the Chargers... Even playing, I mean, Denver makes basically everybody play ugly. Um, Seattle's defense played well this past week against the Cardinals, even though the Cardinals are in disarray. I think the Chargers at home for the second straight week get a win against Seattle. I already made the Kansas City over San Francisco pick. Our Sunday night game, Pittsburgh at Miami. You know, good for Kenny Pickett, even though he didn't finish the game for the Steelers. Mitch Trubisky came in and finished off the Bucs. Uh, Miami played a pretty decent game. Um, they had to go from Skylar Thompson, who got injured, to Teddy Bridgewater, came in, threw for a whole bunch of yards, could not get the win against Minnesota. Now two is back. Uh, I think Miami is going to be a little bit too much. It's not going to be a pretty game, but I think that offense is going to get back on track against Pittsburgh, who still needs to, excuse me, generate a pass rush with TJ Watt out. In the Monday night game, Chicago at New England. I don't care who's quarterbacking for New England. I don't know or think there should be a quarterback controversy between Bailey Zappi. Uh, and Matt Jones, the Patriots are going to beat Chicago. 
Chicago's offense is horrendous. They should be more dynamic, especially with Justin Fields at quarterback. They don't have a bunch of receivers or weapons at receiver. And I think New England's going to take away the running game, whether it's Khalil Herbert or, or um, David Montgomery. Bill Belichick, I said it last week, is good at taking away what you do well. Chicago does nothing well, but if you had to pick one between running and passing, they run the ball better than they pass it. New England will make Justin Fields try to beat them. He won't and New England will get the win. So thank you. I get that concludes um, this week's podcast. Got ahead of myself. Want to thank everybody for listening. This is, I think, the longest podcast that I have so far um, of the nine that we've made. Next week is going to be an anniversary episode. In a matter of speaking, it's going to be the 10th um, episode of the, pod, of the 49ers Plus podcast. So I'm looking forward to that. But everybody out there, enjoy your sports this week. The NBA um, tipped off last night. With uh, at least I know that the the Golden State Warriors beat the Lakers. I'm not sure who won between the Sixers um, and the Celtics, but we have basketball, we have playoff baseball, um, hockey, of course, and college football and NFL with a good slate this weekend. So have a good week and weekend, and talk to you next week. Take care.